We'll go ahead and dismiss our kids this morning for Kids Church. I am absolutely, 100%, completely humbled uh, I can promise you that that my accomplishment in school is not mine alone, not by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, it is by the grace of God and by the support of those who love me and have come beside me, the church, my wife, my pastor, family, friends, and so there's not a there's not a Sunday that I stand up before the congregation, that I'm not humbled, that God has, by His sheer pleasure, chosen to use a broken man. And I still can't believe that you people keep showing up to listen to me. (laughs) Uh, Thank you. Thank you for being here, Brother Tommy, Miss Karen. Thank you, Natalie, Mom, for conspiring uh, to make this, uh, and and Courtney, and and so, I, I have a feeling that Stogner probably had something to do with it. And uh, uh, you know, thank you, uh, thank you for uh, to the church members. Uh, there are some of you that have been with me for fifteen years, and you're still with me, and I don't know why. <laughs> Uh, but thank you for being here. Thank you for your support, your prayers. Uh, I still remember that that sermon that you preached, Brother Tommy, on July 6th. Uh, you were preaching a, through the book of Joshua. And you were preaching about Joshua crossing the Jordan River. And you still claim that you did not do this, but you looked me dead in the eye and you said, some of you need to quit waiting and take a step of faith and trust God, and you said you didn't do that. So, so just so you know, it's not just me that preaches at you. Other uh, uh, other preachers do it too. Other preachers, uh, uh, you, you'll come to the uh, you know door at the back after the sermon, and you say, "Preacher, you were talking just to me." I can promise you, it's not only me. Uh, so, uh, I I'm grateful that God uses uh, that God uses the words of of men to accomplish His will. Thank you. Thank you for everything. This morning, I'm going to ask that you open up your Bibles, if you have your Bibles, to the book of Acts chapter 4. Uh, we're going to continue this series, and this will be our last Sunday uh, on the series of faith. We will jump back into next Sunday. We'll jump back into the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, we finished the book of 1 Samuel, uh, and we know that historically, uh, the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel is one book, so uh, as an expositional preacher, I can't finish with the book of 1 Samuel. I have to finish the whole, uh, the whole story as God has uh, intended for us, so we will pick up next week walking through the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, but today, we are going to finish our series on faith. We began looking at saving faith. What is that faith that saves? It is that faith that imputes to us righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus. And then we looked at growing faith, that faith that sanctifies us, that takes us from where we were, that yes, God saves us and gives us His righteousness, but we don't look like Jesus when He saves us. 
And God takes us and He grows us and He sanctifies us and makes us more like Christ. And then last week we looked at enduring faith, that faith that endures hardships, difficulties, trials, and tribulation. And today we're going to be looking at multiplying faith. What is that faith that multiplies? That faith that reproduces itself? That faith that, that takes the good news of the gospel and multiplies? So if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 4, we're going to read verses 1 through 20 this morning. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. Many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And it came about on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. And when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated, untrained men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to go aside out of the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men for the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them? It is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that they may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. Will you pray with me? God, as we look At this text, may we see not the words of a pastor or a preacher. May we see not compulsion because of guilt, but may we see a faith that necessarily reproduces. May you speak to our hearts. May you lay upon us the compulsion by your grace and your mercy to speak of what we've seen and what we've heard. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I pray that when you leave here today, that you will naturally, by a, by a natural and organic evidence of God moving in your life, that you would multiply your faith, that you would reproduce what has been produced in you by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to point out to you some, uh, I'm, I'm going to lay some, some groundwork and some foundations before we jump into the text. And these are some, some, some presuppositions that, that we have as the church and, and that the scripture lays out for us. And so I'm asking for just a little latitude uh, as we dive into this text. First of all, I want to understand, I want us to understand that God in His great grace and in His great wisdom and in His great sovereignty has chosen a methodology and has chosen a means by which He intends to fulfill the Great Commission. As Jesus is giving His great commission to His disciples, He says in Matthew chapter 28, He says, All authority has been given unto me, therefore go into all the nations, making disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we see Jesus as He is ascending. The, the Scripture says, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, But the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will receive power, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the othermost parts of the earth. I want us to understand that this message and this commission and this, this, these marching orders were given to the church. It is God's ordained methodology for the church to be the means of the fulfillment of the Great Commission. In all of its ugliness, in all of its failures, in all of its brokenness, in warts and all, you, the church, me, the church, we are God's intended methodology. We are God's plan A. And there is no plan B. He says in Acts 1.8, you will receive the Holy Spirit. When does that take place? In Acts chapter 2. So, so he, he's telling them, he says, okay, when the Holy Spirit comes, you, the church, will take the good news of the gospel. You're going to start in Jerusalem, and then you're going to go to Judea and Samaria, and you are going to reach the end of the age with the good news of the gospel. And who is that to? That is to the church. All of those who have come to faith in Christ are part of Big C Church. And it is our responsibility to take the good news of the gospel. But the reality is, is that Big C Church organizes itself as Little C Church. As the church at Antioch, the church at Jerusalem, the church at Philippi, the church in Thessalonica, church at Redeemer, church at Struma, church at Florida Boulevard. God in His great wisdom and in His great sovereignty takes and He organizes these, these people who are engineers and plumbers and electricians and salesmen and contractors and nurses and He collects them in a, in a, in a local body and He equips them with the good news of the gospel and He equips them with the Holy Spirit and He equips them with with teaching and and discipleship. And then He sends them out into the world. He says, now go when when you serve and act as a plumber and when you're an electrician and when you're a contractor and take the good news of the gospel with you to the end of the age. That is God's methodology for the fulfillment of the Great Commission. And so we understand that the church 
is God's means for fulfilling the Great Commission. And so as we look at this this journey that we've been looking at over the past few weeks of faith, that God saves us by faith, that, that in that saving faith we begin to grow in our faith, and in that faith we begin to endure and we begin to persevere in our faith, and now we come to the point as we grow in our faith that we should multiply, that we should reproduce our faith. I want us to look at the text. First of all, we understand that Peter and John were just like you and I. If you have your Bibles, go to the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 13. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John, they understood that they were uneducated, untrained men. How many of you can identify with that sentiment? That I am an uneducated, untrained man. And for many of us, the fear of sharing our faith is rooted right there. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. Well, I want to point out to you that Peter and John didn't know what to say and they didn't know what to do either. They were uneducated, untrained men, yet God equipped them to reproduce their faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. And in the same way that God equipped Peter and John through the power of the Holy Spirit to reproduce and multiply his faith, God intends to equip you to reproduce and multiply your faith. And you say, but preacher, I don't know what to say. I haven't gone to seminary. I don't have a master's degree. I don't have the, the, the tools. I don't have, I don't, I, I can't stand up here and, and, and quote scripture, passage and verse. And I, I don't know what to say. Whenever somebody questions me, I'm going to, I'm going to be at a loss. And what if I say the wrong thing? Let me encourage you. Peter, the man who stood up and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This Peter was also the man who would stick his foot in his mouth every time he got an opportunity. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the very John who was hiding behind the women at the crucifixion. The very John who ran to the tomb and was afraid to go in because he didn't know what he would find. Uneducated, untrained men. You say, preacher, I am not equipped to share my faith. Baloney. If the Holy Spirit worked in you saving faith, if the Holy Spirit is in you growing your faith, if the Holy Spirit is in you causing you and enabling you to endure and persevere through hardships, then the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who saved you, the same Holy Spirit who, who grows you, who equips you, the same Holy Spirit who causes you to persevere and endure through hardship, that same Holy Spirit will equip you to share and to multiply your faith. Verse 13, go back to verse 13. I want us to notice what they said. They said, these are uneducated, untrained men, but also they begin to recognize them as having been with Jesus. So what is it that equips them to share their faith? They had been with Jesus. It wasn't that they had a a degree 
It wasn't that they were had the Old Testament, the Pentateuch memorized. What equipped them and what qualified them to multiply their faith is that they had been with Jesus. So for us, if you have a relationship with Jesus, if you know Jesus, that is the only qualification and equipping that you need to multiply your faith. That's it. If you know Jesus, you are both qualified to share your faith and by the grace of God, you ought to be compelled to share your faith because you know Jesus. Now, I want to point out to you something very, very important for us to understand in this text. And I want to... There's, there's a direct application for us in the world that we live today, especially in this post-Christian generation that we're living, because the enemy's methodology doesn't change. He does the same thing generation after generation after generation, and he's doing the same thing today. Look at the text in verses 13 through 17. The scripture tells us that, that the elders... And the rulers and the scribes, they understood that there was a noteworthy miracle that took place. And they said, we have to acknowledge that something great and something grand took place. But I want us to notice what what they say in verse 17. Look at verse 17. order that it may not spread, what is it? The gospel, the good news, their faith. What in order that the gospel may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to any man in the name of Jesus. Now, I want to point out to you that they did not warn Peter and John to stop healing people. They did not warn Peter and John to stop their benevolent acts. They didn't even warn Peter and John to stop praying. They didn't warn Peter and John to stop meeting and worshiping together. They did not warn. They they were quite aware of what was going on in the the city of Jerusalem at this time. They were quite aware that that these men were meeting, that they were gathering on a regular basis. This is just on the heels of Acts chapter 2. This is just on the heels of Pentecost. Do you not think that Caiaphas and Annas and all of the high priests are aware of what's taking place in Jerusalem? They know what's going on. And what do they warn Peter and John about? Speaking in the name of Jesus. You know, it's interesting. Acts, after August of 2016, there was a tremendous influx of churches that were working gutting out homes and, and rebuilding. And, and even the governor of the state of Louisiana lauded the effort and the work of Southern Baptist in Louisiana and in Baton Rouge and Denham Springs and Prairieville and Gonzales because of the work that was done. The enemy does not oppose benevolence. 
The enemy does not oppose good. The enemy does not oppose us feeding the poor. The enemy does not oppose us helping the, the, those who are in need. The enemy does not oppose us healing the sick. What the enemy hates and loathes is the name of Jesus. They don't mind our benevolent acts. In fact, they will come right beside us and they will hand out food in the soup kitchen. And they will, there will be other denominations and other faith groups and other, other civic organizations that will come beside evangelicals to do good works. But where the rub comes is whenever we stand and we say and we preach the exclusivity of Jesus. That there is salvation that is found in no other name than Jesus. That's where the rub comes. It hasn't changed, church. The world has not changed. The enemy has not changed. And I want us to note that they did not chastise, they did not rebuke Peter and John for anything other than preaching in the name of Jesus. John chapter 15 warns us of this. In John chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus tells his disciples, we have this chapter 14, 15, 16, as Jesus understands that, that my time on earth is drawing to a near, we have this, this, these three chapters of John where he is addressing his disciples, giving them their, their last marching orders. And he tells them in John chapter 15, he says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. And so we must understand that the world has a, has a detest, they, they, they detest and they despise and they loathe Jesus. Because he claims an authority. Because he says, before Abraham was, I am. Because he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man may come to the Father but by me. There is an exclusivity that Jesus claims. And God is not sitting up on top of the mountain, and there are all these many paths that bring us to God. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, and that's the person, Jesus. And the enemy opposes that name, opposes Jesus. Let's go back to the text in Acts chapter 4. The disciples saw their multiplication of faith, their proclamation of the gospel, not as a point of, not as a point of suggestion, but they saw it as a point of, obedience look at verse 20 as they are warned by the elders as they are warned by the high priests are warned by the scribes they are they are warned to speak no more in the name of jesus and their response gives us an indication as to how they viewed their marching orders look at verse 20 they say we cannot stop speaking i'm sorry verse 19 peter and john said to them whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. So they understood that, that, there was, that they were given a choice, that they either were going to obey the civil authorities that were above them, 
or they were going to obey the divine authority, but it was a matter of obedience for them. It was not a matter of suggestion. It was not a matter of, yeah, this is going to be beneficial for the church. Yes, this is going to grow the movement. For them, it was a matter of obedience. It was a matter of doing exactly what God had called them to do. Well, where are they getting that? Why do they feel that this is an, an, an issue of obedience? I'm so glad you asked. Let's go to the book of Matthew chapter 28 and let's look at why they would see this as an issue of obedience. First of all, Jesus makes the statement, and this is where I want us to understand that, that it is not upon you and I to do the heavy lifting in our evangelism and our multiplying of our faith. Jesus spoke unto them and he said, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. So that alleviates the responsibility for you and I to do the heavy lifting. Jesus has already said, I've got the authority. And then we see in verse 19, Jesus then says, Therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the, whole, in the, name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Go back to verse 19. I want us to see this. The language says, Go therefore and make disciples. As we understand the book of Matthew chapter 28, the word go is, is, is a series of participles that take place in the, in, in the original language in the Greek. So what it says, what, what, what the original Greek says is going, making, teaching. It is a series of participles. What the text, what the connotation of the text says is that As you go, you are going to be making disciples. You're going to be baptizing. You're going to be teaching. As you are going. So what does this mean? This means for the disciples. This means for Peter and John. As you are going into the temple, which is why they were in trouble. As you are going into the temple, you are going to be making disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And what did they do? They were walking into the temple and one of the men was saying, Peter and John, give us some money. And he said, gold and silver have I not, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus. Rise and walk. As they were going about their daily life, they were sharing the good news of the gospel. As they were going about their daily life, they were multiplying their faith. They were reproducing their faith. It wasn't something that they gathered on a, on a, on a Sunday night at church and said, you know what, we're going to have a, 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 a program where we're going to go out and share our faith. Not that there's, not that there's anything, anything counterproductive to that, but it was a part of their everyday life. Faith that is saving faith, that is growing faith, that is enduring faith, will be multiplying faith because it happens organically. As you go to the ball field with your kids and you're sitting next to the mom and, and you know, you're, you're talking about baseball and you're talking about kids, the natural course of the conversation, if you love Jesus, you're going to talk about what you love. And you ought to talk about Jesus. As you're at work, as you're sitting at lunch, as you're at the water cooler, as you go about your life, make disciples. 
It was a part of their command. It was a part of their marching orders. It was an issue of obedience. Peter and John said, all we did was go into the temple. This man asked us for help. We said, we can't give you any money, but I can give you something that is far greater than than, than money. I can give you eternal life, not because it's mine, but because it is God who gives freely thereof. They saw it as an issue of obedience. And church, you have a responsibility, the same responsibility, the same plan, the same compulsion that was given to the disciples is given to us. As you go, as you work, as you go to the ball field, as you play golf, as you go eat lunch, as you barbecue on Memorial Day, make disciples. Make disciples. I want to point out to you, that their making of disciples and their proclamation of the good news of Jesus was based upon their own experience. Look at verse 20. It said, in verse 19, they said, look, it's a matter of obedience. We have to do what God has called us to do rather than what you're telling us to do. And in verse 20, they said, we cannot stop speaking, look at the last verse, about what we have seen and what we have heard. Peter and John are not speaking of some third hand experience. Peter and John were with Jesus. Peter and John walked with Jesus. Peter himself walked on water and met Jesus out on the lake. John entered an empty tomb and found his burial cloth lying there. Peter and John dispensed the bread and the fish that Jesus multiplied. Peter witnessed his mother being raised from the dead. John watched him die. These were men who were with Jesus. And they said, we cannot help but speak from our own experiences. What this tells us, church, is the most powerful evangelistic tool you have is your experience with Jesus. As you share your faith, as you multiply your faith, as you reproduce your faith, Yes, tell the stories of the New Testament. Tell of what Jesus has done. Tell of how He multiplied the fish and the bread. Tell of how He he raised Lazarus from the dead. Tell those stories, but tell your story. Revelation chapter 12, 11 says, And they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they loved not their life even unto death. The most powerful evangelistic tool you have is your experience with Jesus. So, if, and this is a big if, if you have a relationship with Jesus, it ought to be evident in your life. If you have a relationship with Jesus, if you are walking with Him and talking with Him, if there is a a personal relationship, it ought to be evident in your life, and your most effective tool for multiplication, for evangelism, for reproducing your faith, is your story. What has God done in your life? In just a few moments, we're going to 
I'm, I'm, I'm going to brag. I'm going I'm to pause right now, and I'm going to brag on what God has done in the life of one of our church members. Today is the first Sunday that Miss Kathleen Argyle is off of all of her chemotherapy medication. Three years ago, four years ago, three years ago, she was diagnosed with kidney cancer. Had it not been for the diagnosis of the kidney cancer, they would have never found the lung cancer. Just a few weeks outside of surgery from lung cancer, she goes to her oncologist, and her oncologist says, I, I, I don't see any cancer, any kidney cancer or any lung cancer anywhere, and so we're going to take you off of all of your medication. And, and that is what Jesus and what the great physician has done in her life. And so her greatest testimony, her greatest evangelistic tool is for her to be able to say, let me tell you what Jesus did in me. Amen. Let me tell you how, how God has changed my life. And it's not just the cancer because he worked in me long before he ever healed me of cancer. And that is the most effective, the most effective means of evangelism of you telling your story how Jesus changed your life. You tell your story how Jesus saved you from an eternity in a Christless hell. But I want to point out to you one last thing in verse 20. Verse 20 says, We cannot help but speak about what we have seen and what we have heard, our own personal experience, but look at the very first part. We cannot help but speak. You've heard the quote, no doubt, Preach the gospel, share the gospel at all times. And when necessary, use words. Church, it's necessary. Peter and John did not say, we cannot help but share the gospel by all means. And when necessary, use words about what we've seen and heard. They said, we cannot help but speak about what we have seen and what we've heard. Because the world is going to take your benevolent acts, they're going to take your kindness, they're going to take your goodness, and they're going to interpret it through their own lenses, and they're going to interpret it through their own filters, and they're going to receive it as twisted and perverted by the enemy. But when you speak clearly about the testimony of how Jesus has changed your life, God will use that to multiply and reproduce your faith. You must speak. You must speak that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. You must speak that there is one name given under heaven by which men must be saved, and that is the name of Jesus. You must speak. You must tell them how I gave my life to Jesus, and when I gave my life to Jesus, He changed my eternal destination. You must speak about when I gave my life to Christ. Things weren't easy, but by the grace of God, His Holy Spirit has given me the power to endure through hardship and difficulty and tribulations. We must speak. We must speak about what He has done in our lives. In a world of relative truth, in a world of false hope, we must be willing and ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. First Peter chapter 3, 
as Peter is writing to the church in the midst of intense persecution. He tells them, he says, always be ready to give an answer, to give a defense to anybody who asks you for the hope that is within you. When they look at you and they say, how is it that you can experience loss and hardships and trial and tribulation and still find joy? How is it that you can, how is it that you are so different? We just looked last week at how God by His grace gives us faith and, and to endure and to persevere. How is that possible? Let us speak about what we've seen and what we've heard. That in the middle of addiction, in the middle of hopelessness, in the middle of, of my life being torn apart, there was hope that I had that was in Jesus. Maybe you're out there this morning. You don't have hope. You want hope, but you don't have hope. Maybe you're out there this morning and you can't multiply your faith because you've never experienced saving faith. You don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. Well, let me invite you to come. Jesus said, all those who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. This morning, Jesus is calling. He's calling you either to give your life to Jesus for the very first time, or He's calling you to multiply your faith. Will you find yourself obedient? Let's pray. God, we thank You that in Your great grace You sent Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin. If this morning, for the very first time, God is calling you to a personal relationship with Him, may You come. Maybe this morning you've been impressed by the Holy Spirit of your need to multiply your faith, of your need to speak about what God has seen, what, what you have seen God do in your life. Maybe for the very first time you realize that evangelism is not a program at church, but it's something that ought to be a part of my everyday life. Maybe God has revealed upon your heart, maybe God has laid upon your heart a neighbor, a co-worker, a family member, a friend that you need to share your story with. How Jesus has changed your life. May today you find yourself obedient. Maybe you need to grab someone and come down to this altar and ask them to hold you accountable to share your faith. Whatever it is the Spirit of God is speaking to you this morning, may you find yourself obedient. Maybe the Lord is calling you to become part of what He's doing right here at Redeemer. May today be the day of obedience. God, may your Holy Spirit have the freedom to move in and amongst us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray.
Will you stand and worship with us?